Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church online worship service. Today you'll hear the Word of God read, the message from this weekend's in-person service, and two songs to guide you in worship. Thanks for joining us today. Hi everyone. Uh, for those of you who do not know me, or maybe this is the first couple times you've seen me, my name is Ryan Jocelyn. I'm the Director of Youth and Families here at Stonebridge Community Church, and it is uh, my pleasure to get to preach to you this, this evening. I want to say this morning so badly, but it's this evening. Um, so today, we're going to continue our sermon series we've been doing here at Stonebridge, Stonebridge called Fulfilled, which is a series on the, uh, that looks at the teachings of Christ's uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, a series of ethical and spiritual teachings that uh, are found in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Our passage for today is Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. And it is a fairly well-known snippet where Jesus gives a teaching on not worrying. It's an idea I've been wrestling with all week. What does Jesus mean by worry? How is this teaching applicable for those experiencing crisis? How do we practice a wisdom teaching such as this when the state of our world shows its fragility and trauma? So let's work through this together and see how we can live into this teaching of Jesus and, call, and the calling we take seriously as Christ's followers in this world. So please listen for the word of the Lord. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you please pray with me? Holy God, I thank you so much for this opportunity to gather and worship, to think through what it means to not worry. And God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you this evening. Amen. So I want to start with telling a story that I think will help illustrate the type of worry Jesus is warning against as he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever had the perfect plan? I mean, the kind where you needed to get something done and you masterfully brought it all together. Each intricate piece is falling into place like clockwork. The slightest disruption and it all falls apart. Well, that's perfect. And just the other week, and maybe you know how the story ends already, I had the perfect plan. Let me tell you about it. 
It all starts with getting ready to go up to Lake Tahoe and do some skiing with my brother and a dear friend. I love to ski and I was really looking forward to this time together. However, in the past, whenever I've gone skiing, I've only ever driven there. Whether it was Big Bear or Mammoth when I was a kid, or most recently when I lived in Connecticut, my friends and I would go drive up into Vermont and go skiing. And what's awesome about driving is you just throw all your gear in the car. Easy peasy, it's all there. Well, this time I was flying. And me being me, I didn't consider till much later in my preparation for flying that I would need a ski bag for my skis. So the Monday before I flew on a Thursday, Sarah and I went out to an REI to see if they had a bag and the best they could do is next Wednesday. And so that wasn't gonna work. So I hopped onto Facebook Marketplace looking for a bag, anything to make it work, right? I'm just trying to find something. And looking for, through things, I found that Greg in Granada Hills was selling a bag for 20 bucks. And let me tell you all, that is a bargain. So I start the conversation. He says, I can't pick it up Wednesday, but after four on Thursday could work. And I thought, well, I'm not flying out till 8 p.m. So if I, you know, if I time it right, I can get off work, pick up the bag and make it to the airport with plenty of time. I mean, I'm flying out of Burbank, easy. So Sarah, being the amazing partner that she is, supports me in this plan and agrees to drive me earlier. And I plan with a seller to meet at five. I mean, he said anytime after four works, right? So five gives me enough time to gather my stuff, jump in the car and get over there. And so on Thursday, we head out to Granada Hills. We immediately hit some traffic, but my phone still says, we're gonna get there at five, no problem. I'm not too worried. And so we pull up to the address and I see what appears to be a whole family clearing out the garage. And I think to myself, oh, Interesting, maybe they're just you know, getting ready for garage sale, maybe they're clearing some space. So we pull up, I get out of the car and I walk up and I ask, for, and I ask if Greg's around, to which they look at me deeply puzzled. And I start to immediately think, well, maybe this is the wrong place. And then they point to an empty spot in the driveway saying that he isn't home. The implication being that with the evidence of the missing car, I should be able to tell that Greg's not around which I think they're making the assumption that I know Greg or have at least a decent enough uh, relationship with him to at least know his car. That's my charitable read on the situation. But the major problem is he wasn't home. I asked them when they think he will arrive and they say they don't know, which is uh, worrying to say the least. So I wait a little and then realize something needs to happen. Sarah's looking at me like, what's going on? I'm sitting there thinking like, I gotta get to the airport. So eventually I ask his family to get Greg on the phone. Well, it turns out that not only is Greg not there, he is over three hours away and won't be home till 8 p.m. Now I thought when he said anytime after four that, you know, I assumed he would just be around. So that five would work. So I'm pretty much immediately over this situation. I ask, well, can I just give the 20 bucks to your family and I can just take the bag? To which he says, no, because it turns out the bag isn't even at this house. To which like, why am I here, dude? I tell him, I can't wait till eight, I need to go. And so we leave empty handed. And I'm thinking, I can't take my skis and boots with me. And there was a moment in that car ride from Ganada Hills to Burbank that I realized 
I cannot worry about this situation. I can't try to find a shop nearby. I can't ask the airline to just like duct tape with cardboard my skis and throw it in the hole. I don't have a friend around to like just ask and see if they can give me a bag really quick. The hand is dealt Now I need to play it. At that moment, I realized that the plan I needed to go with is to leave my stuff with Sarah and just rent in Tahoe, which is expensive to say the least. I guess it would be about a hundred dollars and yeah, that's a bummer and I didn't want it, want it to happen, but that was the situation. And I had a choice. I had a choice to either freak out and worry, to destabilize into a mess of anger and anxiety, or I could realize that I needed to think clearly and make the most of the situation. I wasn't gonna let this tank my whole trip. Worrying wasn't gonna do any good. Worrying would have only brought me into a place of havoc, of unclear thought, and I would only be able to make decisions from a place of fear and anxiety, which never work out well. It would have taken over the whole trip. It would have soured my fun, robbed me of the joy with being with my brother and friend on top of snowy mountains. Not enjoying, not worrying, allowed me to accept and plan in a way that made my trip enjoyable and amazing with a hundred less dollars in my bank account. And being completely honest, if this had happened the day before, I probably would have been freaking out for 24 hours trying to find a bag in, before my flight. Now, I'm almost certain that this exact situation has probably not happened to you, but you likely have found yourself with a problem in front of you that is tough to solve through. And you likely, you too, made a choice, either subconsciously or consciously, and you worked through the situation. Or you became a complete mess, worrying over the thousands of possibilities that can unfold in front of you to a point that not only does the decision you make not really solve anything, but you were, you were so miserable the whole way through that process, and you were miserable after this decision was made too. I think the kind of worry that would have sent me into a spiral of catastrophe or caused me to act out of fear instead of clarity is the kind of worry that Jesus is warning us against. Worrying in this way is rumination and obsession over a problem. Sometimes in our control, often for me, out of my control, but it dominates our headspace, taking over every thought we have about the problem and leads us to a place where we cannot see the problem clearly and worsens our decision-making. In short, worrying won't do any good. In the passage we just read, Jesus tells the people listening to him to not worry over what they eat, drink, or wear, for life is more than these things. Our first observation we need to make about this passage is that Jesus's language is of a wisdom teaching. It's a warning about acting from a place of worry. Christ is explaining that making decisions in a place of fear or anger are ultimately not effective nor helpful. He is not saying that we should ignore these things in the world. Jesus is not naive and knows there are serious needs amongst the people he is teaching to. He knows that most of this crowd is living in poverty or crisis and are in want of basic needs in that very moment. That's what I think can make this passage tricky to work through. 
as we consider those in our world and community who are living in crisis, what does not worrying look like in a crisis? It has been a question I have wrestled with all week. Importantly, we also need to understand that Jesus is not gaslighting his listeners here, and neither should we with pithy and empty statements of do not worry. For those of you unfamiliar with the term gaslighting, let me introduce it to you. The central idea behind gaslighting is when someone actively denies the experience of someone else, often a negative one they're having. This is like when someone hurts someone else and then claims that that person's not really hurt or they're just faking it. For this passage, it is important to understand that Jesus is not looking at someone who is in an active emotional state of anxiety and worry and saying to them, don't worry about what's going on because that would be both naive and incredibly unhelpful. Additionally, I think it's also important to make clear that Jesus is not talking about anxiety disorders here. People who live with anxiety disorders are not always able to regulate their anxieties and can find themselves in states of panic or general anxiety. Again, telling someone who is suffering from an anxiety or panic attack to not worry ends up being a form of gaslighting that is not helpful to that person or the situation, but it also doesn't see the dignity of that human right in front of you. So all of this leads us right back to looking at our passage and needing to discover what it means to not worry according to Christ's teaching. We know that it requires a way of being that does not act from a, a place of fear or anger, but I do not think we can stop there with our interpretation. Jesus continues in this passage by giving two examples of God taking care of birds and flowers, things that do not provide for themselves in the ways that humans do, and yet God still cares for them. The implication here is not that humans should expect God to magically conjure up life's needs in front of us, but it is a reminder that God the Father is a father. God cares deeply for creation, cares deeply for humanity, cares deeply for those in need. What is being asked by Jesus is a trust in God's care for the world and humanity. But what does this trust look like? I think Jesus is teaching that we should not obsess and ruminate over the problems we face personally and across the world, coupled with the teaching to trust in God's care for, for the world, must be understood alongside the core of Christ's teachings about the kingdom of God and the care he calls his followers, us, to have for the poor and those marginalized and suffering in society. And this should lead us to an interpretation of do not worry that rejects any sort of passivity or apathy on our part. When we can identify our worry and the ways it is destructive, we can see we need to stop investing in that type of behavior. However, this cannot mean we just become apathetic to the problems in our lives and in our community. We need to find a level of care for our community, world, and selves. There have been times in my life where I have heard people interpret this verse and other verses like it with what I call an apathetic trust in God. This type of thinking often goes along the lines of, well, we shouldn't concern ourselves with what's going on because God's got it, right? Right. 
And what's so fascinating about this interpretation is that it seems to directly contradict the vast majority of Christ's teachings about what God communicates as God's will. I mean, look at us here at Stonebridge, the past sermon series and season, we've been talking about Christ's explicit teachings about how to act in this world. I mean, if if we're going to follow Christ, we need to care about living here. So any interpretation that leads to apathy is one that doesn't take take into account the teachings of Christ as a whole. And it can be a particularly dangerous interpretation as well. The danger is that apathy often leads to the creation of systems that ignore problems or leads to personal despairing in the face of a problem. It leads to the type of thinking that sees acting as futile, resulting in one's beliefs and actions becoming more inwardly focused and not communally focused. Apathy can lead to continued suffering for communities that experience problems that have been ignored by those who don't experience those problems themselves. Apathy often leads to eventual suffering for ourselves if we let our problems just get worse. Apathy can also look like when people want to deny a problem even exists and don't want to even take responsibility for it. To put it simply, the warning of do not worry does not mean to stay on the sidelines. So what we need then is a framing for care that does not fall into the poles of the spectrum of worrying or apathy. But what should this care look like? And how do we distinguish it from worry? Well, this question reminded me of a phrase that my, t- my dad told me back when I was in ninth grade. When I was entering into high school, and I don't know about you, but for me, it was a very stressful time. But the top stressor for me was making the freshman baseball team. Baseball was a huge part. It is a huge part of my life. Uh, But when I was a kid, I mean, that was everything I wanted to do. And entering into high school is the first time someone else could deny me the opportunity of playing at the the next level if I didn't make the team. That was causing me a lot of anxiety. To help me mitigate the anxiety, but to still play with intensity and have fun, my dad encouraged me to adopt a repeating mantra. Be quick but don't hurry. What this mantra is meant to encourage is to play the game with intensity. Be quick to the play, play. pay attention to what is happening, focus on my approach, but don't push myself into a state of worry. That would place me where I'm afraid to make a play, worried a ball will be hit to me or stressed out at the plate. The idea is I should care about all that is happening around me in the game. Take responsibility. Each play brings its own set of circumstances that require attention and diligence to meet the challenge. But this care should never swing into a state of worry where I'm panicked to make a play or a state of apathy where I just want to give up and don't care about what's going on. Now, if we replace baseball with following Christ and replace being quick but don't hurry with being caring but don't worry, then I think we have a framework to understand what it means to live into our calling and to not worry. Christ calls us into a life of caring for the world, care for those most struggling among our world. But this level of care should not push us into a space of paralyzing fear or despair. Perhaps 
easier said than done. In our passage we read, I think Christ brings us to this exact idea in verses 32 and 33. These verses are a callback to the Lord's Prayer that just was happened 15 verses earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. In our passage, Christ repeats the same sentiment that God already knows the things we need before we ask, as Jesus also prefaced the Lord's Prayer. And then he says in our passage that we should first strive for the kingdom of God and God's righteousness reminding us of the crux of the Lord's prayer, which is the hope that God's kingdom will be on earth as it is in heaven. And what does it mean for earth to look like heaven? Jesus teaches us right there in the Lord's prayer, ask for daily bread, our basic needs to be met, to forgive debts, personal and economic, and to alleviate the time of trial, to prevent suffering, to ensure all basic needs are met across humanity and creation, to forgive one another, to prevent suffering. These are some of the cornerstones of the kingdom of God that Jesus preaches about. These are the things Jesus calls us to care about. We see this in his teaching of the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The second part being just as important as the first part, teaching us there's no difference between loving our neighbor and loving God. Or maybe we can look back to the prophets when God communicates to Israel and specifically in Micah, when it is asked, what does the Lord require? The answer is to do, is to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly. The caring we want to cultivate in our lives is the call of a Christian. To love our neighbors and God and to live that out to its fullest extent. To liberate the marginalized, to care for the poor and invite the stranger in, these are the makings of the kingdom of God. This type of care denies any sort of apathetic trust in God and instead encourages a participatory trust in God to see how we can be alongside God and working in this world to create patterns of love and generosity rather than hatred and greed. We should also be careful to recognize here that participatory trust in God is a caring that strives for the righteousness of the kingdom of God, not for a type of living that upholds in an understanding of hustle and grind culture, to care about climbing the corporate ladder and how to make more money than somebody else or to have a gathering of possessions as a good part of life. This is all to misunderstand what Jesus is talking about by caring. And we know this explicitly because this whole do not worry passage comes right after and is in addition to Christ's condemnation that one cannot serve both God and wealth in verse 24, right before this. In order to practice this teaching of do not worry, we need to recognize the ways our economic culture that encourages a greed mindset and a scarcity mindset is its own version of worry that does not seek the kingdom of God. Now, again, I wanna make clear that this is not a naive teaching. There are people who struggle to have housing and food each day due to a lack of money. But in their case, 
they are not serving they are not serving money the way many people in our world ravenously desire an accumulation of wealth so how do we develop a participatory trust in god well i think it starts with taking to heart who jesus continuously calls us to love and care for and then to realize that we do this as a community and not individually I think there can be a temptation to hear this sermon about finding the balance of care between worry and apathy and then feel an overwhelming sense of, well, what can I do by myself? I think our inclination to make problems, make ourselves individually responsible for problems in this world is itself problematic. It's ridiculous when you sit back with it, right? Yes. We need to take responsibility, but we are not Superman. We can't attend to everything on our own. And that's because we were never meant to. We were never meant to tackle these things individually. The calling of a Christian faith has always meant to recognize that we act communally and sustained by God. We are the body of Christ in need of one another. One part of us is not effective without the whole. A community that encourages each other to act with care for our world is an amazing one. And it's a rare one today. And I'm not saying it's easy, but I do think this is what we are called to do. To have a participatory trust in God is to live in the hope that God is reconciling all things that all will be brought into the divine life no one and no thing left out we trust that when we each take our responsibility and act as a community as christ taught us we are building a world that looks a lot like heaven we do not have to worry about whether every time our actions make a difference in the world because we trust in the hope that each time we stand up against suffering against death, against things like war and racism, that we trust that we are the body of Christ living into that hope of reconciliation, that God will make all things new. As Jesus says, do not worry, we must hear the warning against both the ruminating, destructive worrying and the enabling, divested apathy. What this passage points us to is the action of care that strives for righteousness, meaning to love God and neighbor, care for the poor, liberate the marginalized, tend to the brokenhearted, and invite the stranger in with the hope of God's kingdom being realized on earth as it is in heaven. And we must remember that these cares are not for us to hold alone, but are meant to be acted on as a community to work alongside one another, participating in what God is doing in our very midst. The call to not worry is also a call against despair in the face of all the problems we see around the world and instead find hope and courage in the ways our actions of caring for one another are acts of trust in the hope that we are building the kingdom of God together. Amen. At this time, we are going to continue in worship uh, with bringing our tithes and offerings. And uh, whenever I get to 
introduce offering. I always like to make the recommendation or, or, or maybe help us think about the other ways that we can offer our talents and our time and our wisdom and our, serv- and our services to each other in this church. So if you can't give financially and monetarily, think about the ways you can also give back to this community. So uh, as I pray, the, uh, the ushers can come forward. Holy God, uh, at this time, we just want to thank you for all the gifts that you've given us. Lord, uh, we are so blessed as a community, so blessed to have all that we have. And Lord, help us think about the ways that we can give the gifts that you have already given us to others as well. Amen. Shout your praise.
Build my life. 
my eyes in wonder and show